Let's take our Bibles and look to the 11th chapter of Hebrews again today. We're just charting through this amazing passage of Scripture and drawing towards the end of it. Hebrews chapter 11, want to focus in on verse 30 today. And as we do so, I'm mindful that we need a generation of Christians marked with faith and obedience to experience the great glories of God, to experience the victories of God. And certainly the Spirit of God desires that of us. So by God's call and grace, you and I can be that generation. The world needs a generation of Christians that have great power and experience great victory. And God has given us the privilege to be that generation. So I hope this text today will encourage us and move us in that kind of faith in response to Christ our Lord. Look in chapter 11, verse 30 with me. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. Now that singular verse is unpacking for us in Joshua chapter 5 and 6. And here the writer of Hebrews is just reminding us of that great narrative and that great truth, which is about Joshua understanding God's work in and around him. And this text will really bolster Joshua's life and confidence in him and the account that the Lord is going to bring to bear. This account is where Joshua realizes the call of God more fully and the Lord's eagerness to lead him and give victory to the people of Israel over their enemies. This is the battle of Jericho that is mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 30. And if you remember, the battle of Jericho is the gateway battle for which Israel is going to conquer the land that God has promised to give them. Now, in the previous verse that we studied last week, you'll remember that the the text centered on the faith of Moses and others who crossed through the middle of the Red Sea, but did so on dry ground. Israel had experienced that great victory that God had provided for them, and Egypt had experienced a crushing defeat as the waters came back over them. But because of Hebrews 11, it highlights only those with admirable faith. There is a skipping of about 40 years between verse 29 and verse 30 of Hebrews 11. And I just wanted to remind you that uh, though they walked through the waters of the Red Sea with great confidence in God as they watched what God was doing, the people really languished in faithlessness over a number of years. In fact, God placed them in the desert, the wilderness there, where they just kind of moved aimlessly in faithlessness for that 40-year period. And what God was doing was exercising great judgment against that faithless generation. And literally, they were dying out in the dry desert there of Egypt or in just south in Jordan. So the Lord did not allow that faithless generation to enter the promised land. But now he's graciously led their children to right at the edge of the promised land and is calling for them to have great faith and obedience to him. Now, poised there on the east of the Jordan River in what is modern-day Jordan, the Lord parts the waters of the Jordan River. 
so that the people can cross through on dry ground just as the previous generation had done. Now the people of Israel had amassed there on the plains of Jericho and Joshua was their leader. Remember, Joshua was the one who succeeded Moses and Joshua was elevated in front of the people. God really gave him great favor among the people. And they looked upon him as a great leader, which he was. Now when the Amorites of Jericho and the Canaanites heard that God had dried up the waters of the Jordan so that Israel could cross over, the scripture says that their hearts melted. They recognized that God was working in this generation as God had worked in the previous generation and destroyed Egypt or the armies of Egypt. But Israel wasn't quite ready for the battle yet. And God was going to bring the battle about. It would belong to him. But God knew that their heart was not quite inclined yet for what he was going to call them to experience. So before he moved them into battle, he called them to complete surrender and obedience to him. He would fight the victory for them, but he would require that they would be submitted to him totally. And so he calls them to that. Now be mindful that the people's surrender would not just be with words alone to God. It wasn't that he was just calling for them to make allegiance to him, but he wanted them to demonstrate that. And all faith, all faith has obedience linked to it. And obedience is not with just words, but obedience is with action. So God is calling the people before they get into the region of Jericho, he is calling them to submission and obedience and to worship. And so every male submitted himself to circumcision, which was a, an acknowledgement that they were a covenant people. That was a constant reminder for the generations that they were God's covenant people. And so every male submitted in obedience to that. And all of Israel worship God through the Passover. They, they celebrated the Passover event as it should have been celebrated. And what God was doing in that time is he was working on the hearts and the minds of the people, reminding them of the covenant that they had made with him and more importantly that he had made with them and the exercise of that covenant with worship and obedience. So God was preparing them for the battle by calling them to acknowledge that they were a covenant people who were redeemed by the blood through faith. And that's what he calls for all of us. To be mindful that you and I are covenant people, new covenant established in Christ Jesus, and in doing so, we are to be obedient and worshipful to our God and God alone. So if Israel could understand that eternal significance of God's saving grace, then they could trust him for every battle that they would face in life. And it's the same for us. That if you and I will be confident in God's eternal saving grace, that we can be more confident with God handling every detail of our day-by-day -day living. You and I ought to focus on Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. Know what he's accomplished for us. Know what he's called us to. Know the covenant that he's provided for us. Know where we are going. And in doing so, if we can trust him with our soul, we can trust him with our day-by-day -day living as well. Now, one day, Joshua was drawing near to Jericho. 
Now, he had been here before. Remember, 40 years before, God had instructed through Moses to prepare for the battle of taking the land. They were going to move into the promised land. And Moses determined that one representative of every tribe should go into the area and scout it out. Remember this? And so one of each of the tribe members was going into the promised land to scout it. And Joshua was one of those who was chosen by his own tribe. So he had seen Jericho before. He had been on the land where he was now 40 years later as he's overlooking Jericho. He had been there along with Caleb and 10 others. And there's little doubt that he was doing the same day on this day, the same thing on this day that he was doing 40 years before. He's sizing it up. He's looking to see the coming and the going of the people. He's looking to see what the plan of attack might be. He's looking as the leader of the people how he might conquer this fortified city and this people who are now their enemy in possession of the land that God had promised to them. Perhaps he could still hear the echoing voices of the faithless ten who were with him on that day. And they said, out of Deuteronomy chapter 1, the people are greater and taller than we, and the cities are great and fortified. Listen to this. They say they're fortified up to heaven. That's the way they visualized it. And they were fortified, and they were fortified into the sky. Maybe... Joshua on this day was hearing those words of faithlessness that they could not overcome this people. But I can tell you he wasn't believing the words that he was hearing. He didn't believe it then and he didn't believe it now in this text. He was certain that God was going to provide for them. He was confident in the Lord that he would be there, that he would fight for them. And he was sure now 40 years later that God would give them this land and God would provide for them the victory that he had promised. So pondering with the stare, Joshua looks up and he sees in the background Jericho, but he sees in the foreground a man before him. And that man has a sword in his, in his hand that he has drawn. And immediately, as any soldier would do, he called out to him, Hey, are you for us or are you against us? He wanted to know, is the fight going to take place right here early on in this? Just the two of them. The next word spoken would take Joshua's heart and mind and fortify it, forge it like steel. And it would be what would champion him for the rest of his days as the leader of Israel. Because standing before him was just no man. Standing before him was the commander of the Lord's army. And here's what Jesus, the pre-incarnate Christ, would say to him. No, I am the commander of the army of the Lord now I have come. Joshua fell on his face to the earth and he worshiped and said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? That's a good word, isn't it? Immediately Joshua fell on his face and he worshiped and he revered Jesus, the pre-incarnate Lord. And that's a rightful place for a person who's going to lead the people of God to be humbled, to be reverencing, to be worshiping the Lord and bowing down before him. There's no stronger position for any of us but to humble ourselves before the Lord and rest in his might and his victory. I would call all of us to live in that way. 
humbly bowing before God. Joshua had positioned Israel there on the desert plain, north of the Dead Sea, just beyond the Jordan River, just to the east side of Jericho. And the Amorite people shut themselves up in that fortified city, but they would soon be destroyed, all of them. Now, perhaps in light of Russia invading Ukraine, this would be a good moment for us to pause, take a little trail down the history, a detour to remind us why God had judged the people of Jericho and was wanting to destroy them, why he would want Israel to invade that region of the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Perizzites and the Jebusites and all the otherites, why he was doing that. Well, we'll have to go back about 400 years prior to this when God determined that he was going to bless a man named Abram. And he began to proclaim promises to Abram and tell him about what would transpire over the generations and centuries to come. And he told him about the future of the people of the Amorites as well. God told Abram that his descendants would go to Egypt, and there they would be for 400 years. And he informed him that Egypt would mistreat his people, but one day God would rescue them. And he would bring them back to the land that Abram was now standing on, and that land he would give to them as their own possession. And upon the exodus, God told Abram that his people would return, and they would live on that land, and he would judge and destroy all the people currently in that land, the Amorites, because their sin at that point would be full. In other words, God was merciful for over 400 years to a people that were sinful against him, who were disregarding him in his ways, who had objected from the command of God and even the general revelation of God. And God said, my mercy is extended but it will come to completion. And in the end, I will destroy them and I will dispossess that land and I will give it to your descendants, Abram. And so now, 400 years later, God was doing that. The judgment was falling on the Amorites and the Canaanites who lived in that land. It's reminding to us that God's extension of mercy has a divine expiration date. It's that way for all of mankind. There is coming a day when God's mercy is over and judgment is fully exercised. In this age of grace, it's the time for people to receive Christ, to come to faith in Christ, to walk away from our sinful, rebellious ways and come to him because his mercy will come to a divine end So this is the day for you and me to be telling people about Christ, to be calling them to the way of Christ, to call them out of the sinfulness of the world and into the glorious, righteous kingdom of Jesus while there's time because God's mercy has a divine expiration date. Jericho, this gateway city to the promised land, was the first for the Lord to give to Israel. And as uh, Joshua was there before Jesus. The Lord laid out the battle plan. It's unique. 
And Joshua in turn lays out that same battle plan to the people and instructs them about how God is going to give them victory. Uh, Watch the screen or in your handout or in your Bible to Joshua chapter 6 verse 6. Take up the Ark of the Covenant, Joshua says to the people, and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Ark of the Lord. And he said to the people, go forward, march around the city, and let the armed men pass before the Ark of the Lord. And just as Joshua had commanded the people, the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Lord went forward, blowing the trumpet the ark of the covenant of the Lord following them and the armed men were walking before the priest who were blowing the trumpets and the rear guard was walking after the ark while the trumpets blew continually but Joshua commanded the people you shall not shout or make your voice heard neither shall any word go out of your mouth until the day I tell you to shout then you shall shout And as you know the narrative, for six days Israel marched along with the priests who were bearing those great ram-horned trumpets and the Ark of the Covenant was following after them. And they arose then on the seventh day after marching one time around every six, uh, for six days. On the seventh day they arose and they began marching for seven times straight. And then on the seventh time, The priests were blowing their trumpets and the people began to shout. And as they did so, the walls fell down and every man went straight ahead and captured the city and devoted everything to destruction in that city. What an amazing narrative that is. And there are many things that we could point out in this text, but I want to point out a few that are astounding to me and helpful to me and probably challenging to each of us and hear those thoughts number one God's plans and ways are unlike ours God's plans and ways are unlike ours can you imagine a foreign army invading an enemy city by marching around it for a week I mean a besiege is one thing but just to simply march To shout, to blow some ram horns. God's ways are very much unlike our ways. No commander would choose such a tactic to win a battle. And that's precisely the point. No soldier, no commander could ever take the boasting of the victory over Jericho. None of them could say, we did this. It was all pointing to the fact that God alone brought that victory. And there are times that God's ways are so different than ours and he will call us to do something that's so radically different than we would do ordinarily, but it's the point that God is making. Randy, I've done that in your life. Meadowbrook, I've done that in you. I love preaching in this building because I love the people in this building, but I love preaching in this building as well because it's a reminder to me that God causes us to do the unusual sometimes. Here we stand in a building that is uniquely debt-free. Nearly $9 million God called us to give in order that we would walk into this facility without a dime of debt. And to God be the glory, only He gets credit for that victory. Amen. 
So we should expect the unexpected and trust God for the outcome. Knowing that for those who love God and are called according to his purposes, all things work together. This is, this is a principle that God has given to us. So it's common for God to use the uncommon means to bring about his perfect will. And if you just think back through the history of the scripture, you'll be mindful of that. God rescues a leader of Israel as a baby by placing him in a handmade basket and floating him among the reeds of the Nile River. Who else but God could do that? Bringing him to Pharaoh's household and raising him up, protecting him. He brought down the champion Philistine fighter, the biggest, the strongest, the best of all of the Philistines. He brought him down with the sling and a stone of a shepherd boy. Who else but God could get credit for that? He sustained one of the all-time great prophets of all scripture with the last bit of flour from a jar of a widow woman who is totally impoverished. Who else but God could take credit for that? He brought forth his son into the world, born of a virgin. Who else but God could take credit for that? He calls commoner Galilee men, for the most part, to be the great orators of his word so that they would confound those who were educated and elite. Why? Because God was doing something unique. So in the end, only God could take credit for that. So you and I should recognize that God's plans and God's ways are unique. They are not like ours, and that is very intentional. So that everybody knows God is doing something in the midst of that. But look at the second thing that I wanted to draw your attention to. We should be quick to seek God's supernatural means to accomplish his will and deliberately slow to use natural means. Now, if I had another week or so, I would probably formulate that statement a little bit differently. But I wrestled with it a long time. Finally, I said, okay, Lord, I'm done with that one. I'll just try to, to uh, throw it out there and let the Holy Spirit apply it as it should be. Because natural means are gifts of God, and certainly he uses those. I'm not, I'm not saying otherwise. He's giving us, he has given to us intellect and wisdom and experience and and all kinds of helps that we can just naturally accomplish. But we're not talking about naturally accomplishing here. We're talking about supernaturally accomplishing and seeing God do supernatural unique things that call us to give him even greater glory and build up confidence in us. So God has given us natural means to accomplish things well. I'm not suggesting otherwise. But I'm saying we ought to be deliberately insightful to the strength that only can come from God in the ways that only could prosper the name of God. Bring honor and glory to him. So we should engage quickly towards that. God, where is your strength? Where is your insight? What do you want to accomplish? Now, how is that possible that we can engage in the supernatural means of God by his spirit rather than constantly just moving towards the natural means for us to accomplish? I think it comes in multiple ways. This is certainly not an all-inclusive list, but I think it's this. Number one, that we have a biblical worldview. That we are so reading and memorizing and meditating on the Scripture that we see things through the filter of Scripture. In other words, when things are going on, we ought to be quick to say, where is God in the midst of this? 
What is God doing? What, is, what does this mean according to the revelation of his word? Where is God in the midst of what I'm experiencing? And, and you and I should be very intentional and continuous in our prayers. We should have an ongoing dialogue with God. If you're going to move towards things with the supernatural means of God rather than the natural ways of man, then you're going to have to be consistently and persistently in prayer, engaged in a continual conversation with God. And recognize with God's indwelling spirit, we should intentionally walk righteously And as we walk righteously, the prayers that we have availeth much. So if you want to move beyond the natural to the supernatural engaging work of God, then you ought to be righteous in your living. And then we ought to expect God's providential work, his engaging work that God has prescribed things to be as they are. So certainly we should be quick to seek God's supernatural work. Joshua was quick to do that. The third thing that I think stands out in this text is that we demonstrate godly wisdom and faith when we know when we should be silent and when we should speak. Israel's previous generation was rebellious and unwise which was evident in their constant grumbling and complaining. They grumbled and complained against Moses and against the Lord. They constantly badgered and bickered against Moses. When they faced trials and hardship, they constantly just turned the the attack to Moses. Their mouths exposed their faulty faith. Now, when marching around Jericho, Joshua commanded the people, Don't utter a word. Does that strike you? Does that strike you as odd in any way? I'm wondering if Joshua Joshua is thinking, your moms and your dads, your grandparents, man, were they ever mouthy. And their mouth exposed their faulty faith in their heart. And lest you be the same way. As we march around this city, not a word is to be spoken. I think what he wanted them to do is just be silent and watch the working of God. Be silent, and when I command you to shout, you shout and watch the working of God. And I can tell you there's a lesson there for us, that you and I can demonstrate wisdom and faith when we are quiet. And when it's time to speak, we speak. Let every person, James says, be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Wisdom is demonstrated when we know when to speak and we know when to be silent. Faithless and graceless speech has no place among the people of God. Neither does grumbling or complaining and often Disobedience and faulty faith is revealed in those grumbling and complaining words of people. So Joshua understood that people needed to be silent, not allowing them to fall into their parents' sin. I can tell you that convicts me. Oftentimes I'm just too quick to speak. I need to be quick to be quiet 
and ask the Holy Spirit to speak to my heart. How about you? The fourth thing that I wanted to bring out is that obstacles and closed doors are not always indicative of God's will. Obstacles and closed doors are not always indicative of God's will. The people may have wrongly supposed that the obstacle of the Jordan River and the fortification of Jericho were signs that they were not to enter the land yet. However, God was going to use both the barriers and the obstacles to build their faith towards a more wondrous work and blessing that God had in mind. So barriers are often called today closed doors. And I hear people talking about, well, God closed the door, God opened the doors, as if that's always indicative of God's will or his way. That's not always the case. It's not always a clear indicator of God's will. I can tell you with certainty, God's word is always clearly indicative of his will. You want to know what God is wanting? Read this word. Uh, It's not whether he opens the door or closes the door or there's an obstacle in the way or it's free to go. It's it's not that. It's, It's his word. It's his spirit that will give you. In fact, God has orchestrated the obstacles in front of Israel because he wanted to move them through those obstacles to build up their faith and confidence and come to a clearer understanding of him. And it may just be that in our lives, that God closes those doors and he puts those obstacles in our way and he puts barriers in our way because he wants to engage us in a way with faith that we will understand more fully what he is doing. And certainly at the end of that time, we will look back and give him glory. I pray that we'll have faith enough to give him glory in the midst of the crises as well. James says it this way, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. What are those trials? What are those testings? What are those things? They are things that God has purposefully placed in our pathway that we might grow in steadfastness and faith and understand him more fully. So this narrative reminds us that no barrier is insurmountable by God or his people who obey his instructions faithfully. God determines what will be and he brings it about. Closed door, open door, impeded door, it doesn't matter. God determines it and he brings it about. And when he calls us to that, when he calls us to obedience, we ought to be faithful that God is the one who is the provider in that. All right, moving towards the end of this, some people prove aimless and powerless while others follow God and experience wonderful victory. Now remember the previous generation of Israel had a strong leader. They experienced the miracles of God. They heard the thunderous voice of God, the word of God. But they wandered fruitlessly and aimlessly throughout the desert, never experiencing the promised land. Now here's the next generation. They too have a strong leader. They have experienced the miracles of God, and they have the Word of God. In fact, the Word of God is with them. It's in the ark traveling with them. They are in possession of God's Word, but they are really different. They're a generation of faith, and that difference is 
they are ones who are not rejectors of God and his instruction. They are the ones who receive God's direction and instruction, and they do so with faith. And God gives them amazing victory. One generation proves aimless and disobedient, and the next generation heeded the call of God in faith and experienced the most significant victory recorded in Scripture in this section of Scripture. Now, like you, I love seeing the young families who are active in worship and ministry at Meadowbrook. I love that they are peace, people who are facing cultural, significant cultural barriers, crossing tides of unbelief, coming against the walls of moral degradation and the obstacles of the rejection of God's structure in creation and the natural order of things. Those are all coming against this generation, and yet they remain true and steady to him. While the world is redefining marriage and family, our young families at Meadowbrook are holding to God's word with faith and obedience. And while many in the world are living self-centered and self-directed lives, these young saints live Christ-centered, submissive lives to his Holy Spirit, and they disciple their children to live in such a way. And with faith and obedience, they will experience great successes to the glory of Jesus Christ. And the older generation of this church applauds the younger generation, and we encourage you to champion you, to celebrate you continuously to the blessing of God. Stay the course. Stay the course. You are the generation that is making a difference. When I look around at the generation of this church, the young people whose children fill the hallways who fill the preschool and the children's and the student ministries, I look with great admiration to the Spirit of God who's doing a mighty work in that young generation. And I know you're coming against a lot of barriers, but may I tell you, hold true in faith and obedience to God and watch the victory that he will bring into your lives. To his glory, I'm grateful for you. The victorious life is offered to every one of us in Jesus Christ. In fact, life and peace and joy is ours for the receiving, but it requires surrender, faith, and obedience. Every victory that Israel experienced was by the power and the work of God, no doubt, but it was always enacted through the faith and obedience of the people. God works through people. That same principle applies to us today. God's abilities have not diminished. In fact, he is eternally capable. But God often moves through the faith and obedience of the saints. In fact, Ephesians 3, 20 and 21 says that, Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we could ask or think. According to the power, say this part with me, that works in us. See, sure it's God's power. Sure it's his purpose. Sure it's what he's going to do. But he does it through us who are faithful and obedient to him. To him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever Amen, let it be. So if you're not experiencing the power and the victory of Jesus Christ in your life today, you need to ask why. 
Why are you unable to cross the streams of the cultural wickedness without being swayed into that current and shifted away from God's eternal ways? Why is it that you're incapable of destroying the strongholds that are in your life that rob you from joy and blessings that God wants to give you? Could it be that like the Israelites wandering aimlessly in the wilderness, you have grieved the Holy Spirit and quenched the power which he longs to work within you? The Bible warns against grieving and quenching the Holy Spirit. He says, do not quench the Spirit. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. How might we be grieving or quenching the Holy Spirit? How is it that we don't have the power of the Spirit? It could be one of these ways. You have a faulty faith. The power of the Spirit is quenched in you when your faith is faulty. And what I mean by that, you claim to have faith, but you don't really have faith. You claim one thing, but it's not a reality. And the reality is evident in the way you live your life. And so that will quench the work and the power of the Holy Spirit through us. It could be that you're pursuing and relying on other resources other than the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is certainly quenched and grieved when we go to the natural more than the supernatural, when we pursue our ways over the ways of the Holy Spirit. It grieves Him and it quenches His work. He's not going to work mightily in us if we're not looking towards Him. It could be that we're ignoring or denouncing the Spirit's Word in our life. He gives us direction and we push it off. We discount it or we disregard it. And we say, I, I know what you desire, but I desire this more. Or I know this is your way, but I want this way. And certainly he is quenched and grieved in his spirit. Uh, the spirit is not working mightily in us in that. Maybe it's rejecting the ways of the spirit while we embrace the ways of the world. I can tell you that will quench the work of the spirit in our lives. When we choose the world over the way of the kingdom, and so maybe if your life is powerless, you need to ask, am I one to have grieved and quenched the work of the Spirit? I've got good news for you if you come to that certainty. If you'll confess your sins, God is faithful and just and will forgive you. His Spirit's work is right there at the request. Join him in faith and obedience. Ask him to change your mindset. Be eager to repent of your ways. Be quick to walk away from the sin in your life. Press towards the holiness that God's nature dwelling within you is calling you to. Tell him that you need his power. Submit yourself to him. Remind yourself and announce that you are a covenant person by Christ Jesus, his blood shed for you. And come to the way of God and engage him again in a powerful and effective way. So God powerfully defeated Jericho, giving Israel victory over their enemy. And with that triumph, it was possible for God's people to walk in the fullness of obedience and faith. 
There's an essential lesson for us in this text, and that is that God's Spirit manifests great power in our lives when we are faithful and obedient to the Lord and His Word. If you want power, supernatural power, to the point that it honors Christ and brings glory to the Father, then be engaged faithfully and obediently to God and His Word. And you'll experience that power. And you'll have the blessings of Christ and you'll have the joy of His Spirit dwelling within you. And other people will be radically affected. And I pray in the end that will bring great glory and honor to Jesus. Join me in prayer, if you will. Lord, we recognize we walk in the flesh, but we are not to wage war according to the flesh. But by your grace, our weapons in this warfare of life are with divine power for destroying strongholds and every barrier and obstacle that stands between us and your promises. So we bless you in Jesus' name for what you have enlightened us to and reminded us of and called us to. And I pray, God, that we would be quick to be faithful to you. Echo back our confession to you of our sinfulness and our waywardness and embrace the truth that you have proclaimed to us today. And so, God, do that work in me. Bring truth to me and let me be eager to receive it, renouncing the lies that I've walked in and confessed. And, Lord, build faith and trust and confidence in us. Give it to us in your supernatural grace that we might be able to carry out all the things that you have prescribed for us. To the glory of Jesus, we pray, and the good of the people of the world. Amen and amen.